I pray you had a, a great Christmas, a great New Year. It's hard to believe we're on the other side of all that, right? We're hanging on to the Christmas trees for just a little bit longer. Uh, some of you guys are okay with that. Uh, but it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, we're going to jump back into the book of Acts today, and we're getting closer to the end of uh, this great book of history written by Luke. And one of the themes in this book, I know I've mentioned it before, is Jerusalem to Rome. Jerusalem to Rome. Because we get to see in the book of Acts how the gospel of Jesus Christ makes it all the way from Jerusalem to the center of the civilized world at that time, the city of Rome. But here's, here's the amazing thing, and I'm thankful for it today, that the gospel didn't stop there. That it didn't just end in Rome, it spread across the globe. We sit here today because the, the many continued to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ forward. As a, a church, our, uh, our goal, our mission statement, if you will, is to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And even as we're being uh, discipled in the word of God here, discipled by the spirit of God, we know this, that disciples make disciples, right? And, and the first step in disciple making is to make sure people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a church, we are committed to, to standing with so many missionaries and mission organizations really around the globe that uh, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. In our last fiscal year, we as a church, last fiscal year we gave over $160,000 to missions. Come on, $160,000 to missions. And I wanna show you some of the places this morning where those, those funds went to uh, this last year. You can see the, the pins all over the map. We have missionaries as close as Spring Valley, New York, and Karenette Pregnancy Counseling Center. Uh, we stand with Young Life in New York City, a city relief that is working with those that are, uh, find themselves in a homeless situation and helping them to get the help they need. Uh, we partner with a Christian rehabilitation home in upstate New York. And at the same time, we have funds that go all the way down to Mexico, to the Yucatan Peninsula, to Honduras, Belize, Costa Rica, Brazil. We, we partner with works all the way over in Africa, in Liberia, and of course, Kenya and Tanzania with uh, Kevin Reese and the Reeses there. Uh, and we have missionaries who are actually uh, reaching into the 1040 window uh, to an area where most of the unreached of the world reside. Um, we partner with an organization that brings radio broadcasts into what would be considered closed countries, but today, because of technology, there's no closed country. We get in through, uh, through the internet, through radio, through satellite broadcasts. The gospel is being preached uh, in many Muslim nations. We support works in India and Nepal and, and Thailand. And when you think about that number, 160,000, it's a big number. But I think in the year ahead, we could do even more. I think we could do more than that. Uh, we know as the Christ's return approaches, we want to be a part of proclaiming the gospel uh, to the very ends of the earth. And so every second Sunday, we receive a missions offering. It is a second Sunday, and I, I know so many of you, uh, you give faithfully, you give generously, but I want to challenge you, okay, in the year ahead to consider what you could do every month, every month on a regular basis for missions. Maybe the Lord would put a, a number in your mind right now and you say, I can, I'm gonna do that. Maybe it's a, a faith number for you or maybe you wanna take some time to pray on that and say, you know what, here's what I could do to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially to those who haven't heard. Our ushers are coming to receive your missions gifts today and, and I, I love uh, this offering because none of it stays in the house, okay? All of it goes out to... Uh, support our missionaries around the globe. You can see where it goes. All of it goes to impact lives for Jesus Christ. If you're giving through push pay, you can always give right away to the general missions category. You can do that even on a Sunday that's not Mission Sunday. 
But as you do that, you help us meet monthly commitments. And, and we're hoping this year to prayerfully even go beyond that and stand uh, and do more, okay? And so before we receive this very special offering, as the ushers come, let me, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. Lord God, we thank you today that your, your good news, Lord God, that the gospel, it went from Jerusalem to Rome all the way to us here in the United States. Lord God, we thank you today for the way that message is changing us and shaping us. We recognize, Lord God, that we're not who we want to be yet, but we thank you that we're not who we used to be because your gospel's changing us. And so we pray for our missionaries, for those that are on the front lines, Lord God, for those that are declaring your gospel in some very difficult places. We pray today that you would uphold them, Lord God, that you would strengthen them, Lord God, that you would encourage them. And we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to partner with them in the work that you've called them to do. And so we pray you bless today the gift and the giver that it would be used for the furtherance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23, as we uh, jump back into it today, I'm thinking all that we've seen already in the book of Acts. We've seen so many times where there's miracles and, and signs and wonders taking place, right? People freed from prison, people healed. And as we jump into chapter 23 today, I got to tell you, it, it's not a, a chapter that's full of what we would normally call the miraculous. So often in our lives, we pray for miracles. God, would you do a miracle? Would you break through, right? I want to see the miraculous. And that's a good prayer to pray. But while we don't see the miraculous here in chapter 23, what we do see is the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. And again, it's not a bad thing to pray for miracles, but I hope that you as a believer would step back sometimes and look at the providence of God, how he's directed your life, how he's he saved you so many times, right? How he's, he's brought you to this point uh, that you are at right now. And, and so we were talking a few weeks ago about the Apostle Paul and his his journey back to Jerusalem. You remember this? A little over a month ago, right? And as he's journeying back to Jerusalem, he, he, he's getting warned everywhere that he stops, it's being prophesied that danger and persecution await him in Jerusalem. And so those who, who love him, they caution him not to go. In fact, they plead with him not to go. But Paul understood this, that God's will for our lives is not necessarily the path of least resistance. And in fact, sometimes God calls us into the difficult places for his glory. Got real quiet in here. Sometimes he calls us into those difficult places. Ultimately, Paul has a desire to go to Rome, and he's going to get there, just not in the way that he would have planned. But we, we saw that when he arrived in Jerusalem, he, he's in the temple, and he's recognized in the temple by the Jews from Asia Minor. Amazingly, he runs into the same group of Jews that were causing him trouble back in Ephesus. The same ones who followed Paul from city to city, they stir up towns against him. The ones who partnered with idol worshipers in the process, they now recognize him in the temple. And they make three false claims regarding Paul. They say he's against this people, meaning he's against the Jewish people, he's against the law of Moses, and he's against this place, meaning the temple. They go on to claim that he has actually defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into the court of Israel. Now, Truth be told, Paul would have never done such a thing, but their claim gets the, the crowd worked up, right? And, and so this mob grabs Paul and they want to execute him. Now, this happens in the 
outer courtyard of the temple. And of course, the, the Romans are watching, and so they get involved. They pull him out from the crowd, and they bring him to the fortress that they have set up right next door. And it's a safe distance away. It's a, way, a place that they know the Jews are not going to follow them to. But from that place, Paul shares his testimony with the same crowd that tried to kill him, right? The same crowd that just tried to kill him. He shares his testimony. And it's amazing because the Jews listened for a time, but as soon as Paul tells them that God sent him to the Gentiles, that's it, right? They lose it and they want him dead. Now, the struggle for the Roman authorities is they they don't really understand what's going on. I mean, how could this man's own people hate him so much that they want him dead? And so trying to get some answers, Lysias, the the Roman tribune, he orders that Paul be flogged in question. He said, we're going to get this out of you one way or another. He wants answers. But Paul says, is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen who is uncondemned? And right away, Lysias says, whoa, he backs off. Again, he wants to understand what's happening. Why is this man being accused by the Jews? And so he sends him back now to the Sanhedrin, back to the chief priest and the council, and that's where we pick it up. Acts chapter 22, 23. Acts 23, verse 1. It says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. It's amazing because as he stands before this council, he's not hanging his head in shame. He's not thinking he's done something wrong. He's bold because Paul knows the truth is inside of him. The truth is on his side. He also knows that these religious leaders that he's standing before, they're resisting the work of God by rejecting the message of Jesus and rejecting the gospel. And so he looks them in the eyes and he really sees himself on on an equal footing with them. He, He doesn't say rulers and elders, which is the normal way that you would address people like this. Instead, he says brothers. And he tells them that he's lived in a good conscience before God until this day. Understand, even when Paul persecuted the believers, right? That was the beginning of his story, right? He was doing what he thought was right. He was sincere, even though he was sincerely wrong. And so as he speaks here, he doesn't mean to say I'm sinless. He doesn't mean to say I lived the perfect life or or that his conscience never convicted of him wrong, right? What he means is that he responded to his conscience when he knew he did wrong and he set things right. How many of us can say that, that we've lived our entire life in good conscience before God? Probably can't, but Paul could. Verse two, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Paul's claim of a good conscience clearly offends Ananias, the high priest. He, he thinks someone that's accused of, of such serious crimes should never claim a clear conscience. At the same time, I can't help but think that maybe he's convicted as he sees this man of integrity stand before him. Now, regardless what the motive was, the order that he gives here is illegal. Jewish law said that one who strikes the cheek of an Israelite strikes as if it were the glory of God. And and that he who strikes a man strikes the Holy One. Wow. Here we have one more similarity to Jesus when he stood on trial before the same council They did the same thing to him, only when they struck his cheek, they were literally striking the cheek of the Holy One. And it's amazing that in the the midst of what is is really just supposed to be a a pre-trial, that the priest felt that he could strike Paul like this. Now, everything we learn from the historian Josephus about Ananias tells us that the action that he took here was not outside of his character. He was a high priest 
who did not honor his office. In fact, he was known for his greed. He was known to have stolen tithes that belonged to the common priest. Now, look at Paul's response. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? You see what he's saying there? Understand, in this moment, Ananias' job is simple. He's got to determine if Paul actually broke Jewish law in a serious way. But he begins the trial by breaking Jewish law himself. And so Paul sees right through it. He says, you whitewashed wall. This is a reference to a wall that looks good on the outside, but inside it's crumbling. In other words, Paul is calling him a hypocrite. Now, you could ask in this moment, though, were Paul's words prophetic? Because in AD 66, just eight years later, Ananias, this high priest, would be executed. He'd be executed by a Jewish zealot for his cooperation with Rome. And in all likelihood, Luke wrote Acts before that happened, right? Now, verse four tells us those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Remember, Paul had been away from Jerusalem for the last five years. He had been away from the Jerusalem leadership for, for decades, right? And he, he may not have recognized Ananias. Regardless, he instantly knew this. He knew that what he did was wrong. He knew the way he responded was wrong. We can only speculate that the abuse that he was going through may have caused him to react in the flesh. Or again, maybe it was a prophetic utterance. We don't know. But regardless, Paul puts the word of God above his feelings and he apologizes for his ignorance. Listen, there will be times in our lives where we may be in the right, but the word of God and the spirit of God would cause us to humble ourselves and submit to those in authority. And can I just say humility is so important in the life of a believer. Because very often, it's not our mistakes that do us in, it's our pride that keeps us from admitting those mistakes. So here's Paul, he knew he overstepped. He knew he broke a regulation imposing respect for the high priest. Yes, the high priest was wrong in his actions, but Paul says, you know what, I was wrong in my response. What do they say? Two wrongs don't make a right, but three lefts do. Some of you will get that later. Uh, I want you to see, though, what's happening here because the, the Christ that is in Paul makes him willing to admit his mistakes. You wanna know a sure sign of pride? It's when we defend our mistakes with claims of our own goodness and our own righteousness. Just think of those moments in your lives. How many times have you failed to admit mistakes because of your need to be right? But when pride controls us, when pride controls our lives, it keeps us from confessing our shortcomings and our mistakes. And so often, we back people into a corner of their own failures when we won't admit ours. Humility is admitting this, that we are a people in in process, right? I admit that today, I'm still a work in progress. Christ's still working on me, he's still sanctifying me, he's still growing me in wisdom and understanding. And here's the thing, if your security this morning is in your own perfection, you will always be on shaky ground. If your security is in your own perfection, you will always be on shaky ground. There's no security there. And so as believers, our security ought to be in Christ's perfection and not our own. Somebody say amen. Amen. It's got to be in Christ's perfection. We don't stand here in our own righteousness, in our own perfection. It's in who Christ is and who he's making us to be. Verse 6 says, now when Paul perceived, he saw this, that in that council, one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee. 
I'm a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And so Lysias, this, this Roman council, wants to know what charges should be brought against this man, if any at all, right? And Paul cuts right to the chase. He says, here's the issue. All this is happening, everything you see right now is happening because they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he's the Messiah. Now, the issue of the resurrection was the most uh, important point of contention between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, but the Sadducees did not, and so they were Sadducee. But Paul grew up a Pharisee. You'll remember that, though. You'll remember that. Paul grew up a Pharisee, but now he's even more convinced than ever in the resurrection when he saw who? The resurrected Jesus appeared to him. He's going to talk more about this in upcoming trials, but here's what he knows, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ verified that he is the Messiah and that his sacrifice for sin was accepted by God the Father. But but Paul's standing here, and after being struck in the mouth, he knows this. This is not a place where he's going to get a fair trial. He's not going to get a fair trial from this council. He used to spend time with this council. He knows how things work. And and so he causes this dissension among them. It's brilliant. Look at verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Now, the high priest and the majority of the Sanhedrin were were Sadducees. You could determine the two groups by what they wore. And so the Pharisees, though, they side with Paul in, in regards to the resurrection of the dead. Now, don't get me wrong, they're not willing to say they believe that Jesus is the Messiah or that Jesus rose from the dead. They're not there, but it's very likely that in the time between the uproar that took place in the temple court and the time of this pretrial that someone did a little research and someone went and asked questions and they determined, you know what, Paul never brought a Gentile into the temple, right? And so that's not the issue anymore. That's no longer an issue. The issue now was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? And can I just say that's the issue today as well? Because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is dead and our hope is in vain. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then the word of God is true. And he's the only answer to the problem of sin in our lives. He's the only answer. You see, when Jesus, again, he dies on the the cross, the the resurrection proves not only that, that he was who he said he was, but that his sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. You're thankful for that today? That that sacrifice was accepted for you and for me. Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the the tribune, uh, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring them into the barrack. So Lysias, he's there at at this trial, and he's there to make sure that that Paul's life is not in danger, right? And and so he's watching this all unfold. Can you picture this guy? He's sitting there and he's thinking, man, these people must be crazy. Crazy. Because earlier he saw a riot over one word, Gentiles. They all lose it, right? Now these distinguished uh, religious men in in all their robes and in all their glamour, they they lose it over one word, resurrection, right? 
And so as soon as things get out of hand, he sends the soldiers in and says, get Paul out of here. Take him back to the barracks. The Jews won't follow him there. Paul's ploy to separate the group, it worked, right? He gets rescued from the council. But, but could he be happy with himself, I wonder? I wonder if he wrestled even at this point. Because he had an opportunity to preach to a crowd of Jews on the Temple Mount and, and that failed. Now he had an opportunity to preach to uh, these very influential Jewish leaders and that ends in a fist fight, right? It's a brawl. And later on, Paul was gonna suggest that his tactic to, to cause controversy was not good, that what he did was wrong. But look at what happens, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I love that. Highlight that verse, underline that verse, circle that verse, whatever you gotta do. What a beautiful verse. No doubt. This must have been a difficult night for Paul. He writes in his letter to the Romans of how he longed to see the salvation of his fellow Jews. And he just saw two great opportunities and nothing. Maybe he blamed himself for, for some missed opportunities. Maybe he went back in his mind and said, man, if I had only said this or if I only hadn't reacted like that. You ever been there before? God gives you an opportunity, you're like, man, I blew it. I should have said that. Right? If, if only I hadn't responded that way. There's those moments in our life where we can be tormented with this deep sense of, man, I, I can't do this, I'm unworthy. Can God even use me? And maybe Paul's thinking in this moment, man, this is the end of my ministry. It was a good ride. But in the midst of the darkness of that night, as fear comes upon this man who always seemed to be fearless, at this moment when he could be tempted to, to falter in his faith, when he's struggling with what God is doing and what God is going to do, in the midst of the darkness of that night, Jesus came to Paul and he stood by him. If you've ever had the Lord stand by you and reassure you in a difficult moment, these words ought to remind you of that time, right? And here's what I found about those moments of darkness in my own life. If I'll just get quiet before the Lord and let the word of God and the spirit of God speak to me, I can find courage for whatever I might face. But so often when we come into a dark time and a difficult time, our reaction is the opposite of that, right? We run from the presence of God. We run from the word of God, right? But, but here in, the, in this place, there, there is really, I, I believe Jesus' physical presence with Paul, this unique manifestation. And I, I love this because Jesus knows where Paul was. He hadn't lost track of him in the prison system, right? Paul is alone in that cell, but he wasn't alone. Even if everyone else forsook Paul, Jesus was with him and Jesus was enough. And can I just say, it's better to be in a prison cell with Jesus than to be in a mansion without him. It's better to be in a, in a difficult place knowing that God is with you than to be in a place of prosperity where you have everything and you have no need for him. Hear me, church family, this is miraculous, right? We've, we've seen the miraculous done before, but this time, Jesus instead meets him in that prison cell. And, and we often demand of Jesus that he would deliver us from circumstances. You ever been there before? God, would you just get me out of this? But there are times when he doesn't remove us from our circumstances. Instead, he meets us in those circumstances. 
We sometimes think, man, I'm surrendered to Jesus when in reality, we're only making demands of him that he would deliver us. But the wonder of our God is that he wants to meet us in whatever we face. Jesus is not only with Paul, standing there beside him, but he gives him these words of encouragement. He tells him, take courage. I know the Lord is with us when we know that. It's really a source, it ought to be, a source of tremendous courage for us. After all, he's promised that he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us, amen? And so we can take courage, take courage. Understand today that courage is a gift offered to us by God. And the thing that he desires for us to have, he is so good that he provides it. John 16, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, right? You will have tribulation. But he says, take heart, take courage because I've overcome the world. I I believe this, that the Lord knows when we need the gift of courage. And and in our place of need, he comes to us and he offers it to us. And our only responsibility is to take what he's offered. Jesus tells Paul, you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. You've done that. So now you must also testify in Rome. His witness to the leaders in Israel is completed at this point. Going forward, Rome is going to be the focus. Again, Jerusalem to Rome. And in this place where where Paul needs another confirmation of what the Lord is doing, Jesus provided just that. But this verse makes it clear that success in ministry is not the only sign of the Lord's blessing. Paul's facing challenges, he's, he's facing turmoil, and this does not mean he's outside of the will of God, but rather he's assured he's following God's guidance. And we can see very clearly the sovereignty of God over Paul's life. Again, so often we, we want to experience the miracles and the miraculous. God, give me a miracle. I'm, I'm praying for a miracle. And while I think that's good to pray for a miracle, we also need to be on the lookout for providence. We need to be on the lookout in our lives for God's sovereignty. We need to understand he's in the details of life. And sometimes when you're walking through it, you don't see it. It's not apparent, but I want to encourage you today. Wait for it. Wait for it. Someday you're going to stand back and you go, wow, okay, God, I see, I see what you were doing there. What seemed like normal events really in Paul's life were not. They were a part of God's plan and it's the same for you. Look at verse 12. It says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made such a conspiracy. And so Jesus appears to him. Hey, Paul, I want you to know I'm with you. There's a plan in all this. There's, there's a future for you. And the very next morning, the enemy launches a counterattack. I want to encourage you, be very careful right after high points in your life. Be very careful after high spiritual points in your life. Be on the lookout. Be sober-minded, especially after a spiritual victory, because that's often when the enemy comes after us. And, and when you're on a spiritual high and, and you think, man, things are going so good, we can often let our guard down, can't we? It's like Elijah. We can go from this moment where he was on Mount Carmel. There's this great victory. And next thing you know, he's sitting under a broom tree and saying, God, just take my life, right? If we're not aware of the enemy's schemes, sometimes he'll catch us by surprise. And so be very careful after spiritual high points in your life. And so here are these 40 religious Jewish men And check this out, they're ready to ignore the eighth commandment, thou shalt not murder, right? Maybe they were were so convinced that Paul's deceiving people that they felt justified, but that's kind of a big stretch, right? 
We don't know for sure why these 40 men are willing to risk their lives to kill Paul. Maybe they're trying to gain favor with the Sanhedrin, or, or maybe they're just extremely zealous for their religion of works. Regardless, we're told this, verse 14. It says, they went to the chief priest and the elders, and they said this, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. No lie, the first thing I I thought of when I read this verse is, man, these guys are going to starve, right? (laughs) Right? Because they're not going to kill Paul. They made an oath, right? But remember, these men are so zealous for the law. They're as zealous as Paul was, and they're ready to take the same actions that he took and apply them against him now. But what's amazing is that these men get the cooperation of their religious leaders. Listen, if any of you come to me with an idea like this, you can be assured I'm going to try to talk you out of it. And We're not going to do that, right? Not a good idea. For these leaders, their lie was a sin. Again, men who should have been committed to God's law were happy to sin against him. Yes, they were zealous, but they're willing to lie and they're willing to sin to accomplish supposedly godly goals. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, we're not told this in the scripture, but I'm fairly certain that that Paul's nephew here was a believer. Because I cannot imagine hearing Uncle Paul's testimony, right, and not coming to faith. And if by chance he was still on the fence in regards to Jesus, I'm sure that when he heard this plot by the religious leaders, that would have pushed him to make the right decision. But, but just by chance, coincidence, right? He overhears the plot against his uncle and he lets it be known. Now, th- now th- this, this lets us know that when the enemy schemes against us, I want you to know this today, that God can easily thwart the plans of the enemy. When the enemy schemes against us, God can say, no, uh, done. I'm going to let somebody hear about it. We're going we're to open this thing up. We're going to blow this wide open, right? Because we know this, that no weapon that's fashioned against us will succeed, right? And so the efforts of these men will result in Paul testifying to, to kings, testifying to leaders in Rome. Their efforts will give him time in Rome to write many of the letters of the New Testament. The plans of the enemy will backfire. As you read through the pages of scriptures, you would think that Satan would eventually see the futility of his efforts, right? That he would see how how all the plans he makes, they always backfire. And he would say, you know what, I give up, right? But his pride will not allow him to do so. And I want to encourage you, when you think the enemy is prevailing in your life, when you think he's prevailing against you, seek the Lord and trust him to turn things around. Somebody said it Tuesday night, you don't have to fake it, but you can faith it, right? In the middle of a difficult time, you you can continue to to have faith, believe, have faith. God is at work as you submit to him. And, And it's never about us being proved right or winning for our own sake, but rather it's about the glory of God through whatever we walk through, church. Whatever we walk through, that he would receive the glory. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and he said, Would you take this young man to the tribune? For he has something to tell him. And so he took him and he brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you and he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? 
And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who've bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, and they're waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. Surely this, this young man, what a brave young man, risked his life to go into those barracks. If the 40 men had seen him, I don't know what would have happened. But he relays the plot along with the police. You need to do something about this because this was a serious threat and it was the tribune's responsibility to keep the peace. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Now remember, Paul was a Roman citizen and so it was the, the tribune's responsibility to protect him and he, he wastes no time in doing so. And look how he does it. 470 Roman soldiers would escort Paul out of Jerusalem. I love this, right? It's almost as if God's showing off a little bit here. He, he wants to show Paul, clearly he's faithful, right? To show him without a shadow of a doubt that the words that he spoke to him in prison are real. They're, they're true. You can take courage. And at 9 p.m. at night, he's taken out of Jerusalem safely and they head to Caesarea Maritime. Not only does Paul escape Jerusalem alive, which is a miracle in itself, he does so riding a horse. In fact, he's got a couple horses to choose from. Isn't God good, right? He's got his choice. Verse 25, and he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. We're going to continue with the story next week, but here's a few things I want you to see as we close today. First of all, I want you to see the way in which all of this is setting up Jesus' assignment for Paul's life. And it was an assignment that was, was given to him at his conversion. The, the promise was that he would testify to Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel, right? And he had already testified to Gentiles. He testified to Jews throughout the Roman Empire. He, he was even able to speak before the Sanhedrin. But here we see very clearly how God is laying the groundwork for Paul to go and to testify before kings. Wow. He's going to have an opportunity to stand before kings and testify of the gospel. And as we read through chapter 23, there, there's so much that could be considered by many as coincidence or, or happenstance, right? 
Like the Jews from Asia just happened to recognize him in the temple. The, the Roman guard just, just happens to see what's going on and rescue him before he's killed. Paul just, just happens to be a Roman citizen, which will save his life many times. His nephew just happens to overhear a secret conversation of a plot to kill Paul. The, the tribune just happens to believe him and immediately escort him out of Jerusalem. If you read all of this, though, with an understanding of the sovereignty of God, you can only conclude this, that God is in the details. God is in the details. God is in the details. And I want you to know today that he has a plan for your life. If we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us, if we fill our hearts with his word, he'll be in the details. If, if we watch for his leading, we will, we will find so, that God will do so much more in us than we could ever imagine for his glory and for his name. Just look at all the ways God worked in this passage and then take a moment to look at all the ways that he works through scripture. But don't miss his hand and his plan and all the ways that he's worked in your life as well. As we close, I want to encourage you, church. I want to put courage back in you. Jesus stood with Paul and he said, take courage, Paul. And I think the Lord would say to some of you today, take courage. Stand by you. Take courage. Whatever happened this past year, whatever happened this past month or, or this past week, wherever things are at today, wherever you find yourself today, if you're a child of God, you can know that his thoughts towards you are good. He's a, he's a good father. His thoughts over you are to bring you peace and, and, and a hope and, and a future. He wants you today to, to cast your cares upon him because he really does care for you. He's, he's your rock. He's your defense. And so whatever you're struggling with today, I pray you would hear the Lord just saying, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Would you stand with me today? I pray today that you would hear, even in this moment, the voice of the Lord. He's here. Cheer up take courage wait for it and, and see what the Lord will do but I have to be honest with you today I'm, I'm aware that as exciting as it can be to live a life of faith even though it's difficult it's exciting because we, we have the promises of God we, we understand his providential care but some of you are here today and, and you don't have that peace and you don't have that excitement simply because you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ if you're honest you don't know him and so you're not experiencing the kind of peace that we have, that no matter what happens, that the Lord is there with us, whether we get released from our, our situations or whether we spend another night in a, in a prison cell, man, God's with us. We, we know that, we can be assured of that. At the same time, I recognize this honestly, that if you don't know him, then life's always gonna be a big question mark. It's not going to make sense. You're going to think, man, this is all just random. If you know him, you can rest in him. But if you don't know him today, Scripture says today's the day of salvation. Today's an opportunity to change all that. With heads bowed around this room, with eyes closed, if you've never given your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit's just tugging on you right now, and you say, man, I want to experience this love. I want to experience this forgiveness. I want to experience this, this newness of life. I want you to just raise your hand right now where you're at. If you'd say, I want to receive that. I want to receive that. Praise God. 
want to see that. Praise God for hands around the room today. Just saying, I want to receive that. I want to know that. Anyone else today? Praise God. Or maybe you're here today and you, you need to come back to Jesus. Just quickly raise up your hand. If you say, I'm, I'm going to come back to Jesus. I want to I give my life to him fully again today. Praise God for those hands. Father, it, it's my prayer for these with raised hands that you would, Lord God, that you would raise their spirit today. That you would raise their spirits to newness of life. Lord, that you would show them that life does have purpose and meaning in you. Lord, I pray you'd give them a, a new start and a, and a fresh start, Lord Jesus. And now I'm going to ask you, if you're receiving him today for the first time or you're coming back to him, I'm going to ask you to, to, to pray after me, to pray out loud from your heart. It's kind of like vows in marriage. The couple says them out loud in front of God and witnesses, and so I'm going to pray loud, and I want you to pray after me and say these words. And it's not the words you say, but it's the posture of your heart. Would you pray to the Lord? Say, Lord, I give you my life. Take all of it. I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe in Jesus. I place my faith in him. I believe he died on a cross. That he paid for my sin. That he rose from the dead. That he's alive right now. So I turn from my sin. I turn from my past. I turn to you, Lord Jesus. Be my Lord and my Savior. Help me. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Scripture says there are angels rejoicing in heaven anytime that takes place. I want to encourage you as we close today. If you gave your life to Jesus for the first time right now, or if you've been serving him for years, understand he's working in the details of your life. And he works uniquely in every one of our lives. But it'll always be in line with the word of God and the life of the Holy Spirit in us. In the midst of all that he's doing, you can see his creativity in the details. And so today, as, as we close with a song, as we're still at the beginning of a new year, I have to ask, will you prepare your heart to surrender to what he has planned for you in 2023? Will you understand, man, it's God's work. He's the one who's doing it. He's the one who's working in you, catch this, to both will and to do according to his good pleasure. Is he your Lord? I want to encourage you. Lift your hands this morning. It's just a sign of surrender to him. Would you just surrender to the Holy Spirit today? Just surrender to the life of the Spirit and, and the Word of God. I, I shared on Tuesday night that it is the Word of God and it's the, the, the seed of the Spirit that produces fruit. And so just surrender to Him today. If you would just turn everything over to Him. Just say, God, I don't understand the situation I'm going through. But Lord God, I thank you that you're with me. Which, I, I pray that you just hear His voice in the midst that He would say, I'm here with you. I'm standing with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Allow your ear even right now to be tuned to the voice of the Holy Spirit.